Before we truly get started, uh, let me say that it's been a great privilege to uh, preach to you and be a part of the preaching team over the last nine months, and um, I've enjoyed it quite a bit, and hopefully it's been as useful for me in the hearing as it has been for me in the preparing. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for the chance that we have to uh, go through uh, another section of your word. Thank you for the chance that we've had to do uh, Philippians in the fall and then Colossians here through the winter. Thank you that you have been working through your word to help us know you more, uh, see you more clearly, see ourselves more clearly, and what you have done for us in Christ. And I pray that uh, through these 22 verses in chapter 3 and chapter 4, that uh, you will be continuing to fill us with a love for you, a love for your word, a love for your people, and a, a desire to live the sort of life that pleases you. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Well, believe it or not, the Super Bowl was only three weeks ago, and that means that already underway this weekend here in Indianapolis is the Scouting Combine. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of aspiring professional athletes running, jumping, leaping, taking tests, undergoing medical examinations, all with an eye towards impressing the teams so that they can be drafted higher. Because the higher you're drafted, better chance you'll have of getting a good contract, good signing bonus, better supermodel girlfriend, solid gold toilet seat, all that stuff that comes with a good selection in the draft. But when December comes and you are tired and your body has been banged up and it is cold and the season is on the line and the quarterback turns to you and says, I'm going to give you the ball and I want you to run straight towards those 11 angry men who want nothing more than to take your face and grind it in the ground. Will a paycheck be enough to make you want to get out there and do that over and over again? Maybe. People do crazy things for money, but there are some other motivations that might be in your mind that, you know, this is my job. This is what I do. You know, the coach told me to do it. and I do what I'm told. Don't want to disappoint my family. Don't want to disappoint the fans. If I do this well, people will like me. People will even love me. If I don't do this well, I'll be on the bench, off the team, out of the league, forgotten. Uh, all those reasons might be somewhere in your mind. But when you listen to the athletes talk, what they speak of is victory. We wanted to win the game. We went out there over and over again, gave everything that we had so we could win the game and achieve victory. Not for the money, not for the praise, not because this is my job and this is what I do, this is what I was told, not trying to achieve self-actualization. Victory. That is what they want. This morning we're going to be talking about the motive for living the Christian life. Paul is going to give us a bunch of moral instructions and we're going to have to wrestle with why we would try to obey them we're going to obey the rules to make god happy with us to save ourselves to stay saved or are we going to obey the rules and work hard at that because we are already alive in christ and we want to get victory over the remaining sin in our life colossians 3 really is an extended section of moral instructions and it is tremendously important to see how the chapter starts with our existing relationship with christ that's the foundation of all the moral instruction everybody has rules that they follow all of us even those of us that um, firmly hold to salvation by grace through faith it's not having rules and working hard that makes somebody a legalist a legalist is somebody who puts their trust in the rules to save them. I kept the rules, or at least, you know, I'm a good person and I made a decent effort most of the time to follow the rules. And so God is going to be happy with me. That 
as a legalist. On the other hand, the Christian life starts with acknowledging I can't keep the rules. There's no way I can even get close to living the life that God has for me to live. Uh, I'm going to be okay with God. I'm going to have to trust Christ and his righteous life, that that will be good enough for God, and that his death on the cross paid the sacrifice for my sins, and then I will be acceptable before God. In every couple of verses this morning, Paul is going to be reminding us that our growth in Christ flows from our being in Christ. It is our position in Christ as God's children that makes it possible for us to live a righteous life and gain victory over sin, not the other way around. Our key idea this morning is that you live the Christian life the exact same way that you enter the Christian life. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 that Jeff told us about a couple of weeks ago says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. In the same way that you accepted Christ by grace through faith, in the same way, walk in him. It's through the gospel that we were rooted in Christ, and so it is through the gospel that we will grow in Christ. When he wrote to the Galatians, he wrote and put it the other way around. And he said, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected, being made more righteous, being made complete by the flesh? If you were saved by God's grace and not your own effort, then what would make you think that you can grow in the Christian life through your own sheer effort? It's easy for us to assume that once God gets the process started, then it's up to us to keep it going and move the ball forward. It's easy to start in Colossians 3, 5 and see, hey, there's a list of things to do, a list of things not to do. The Christian life is just a bunch of rules and regulations. Once we get past the stuff with the guy on the cross, then it's just good old-fashioned moralism, and at least I know what's expected of me. And that would be the worst conclusion that we could reach this morning. Now, chapter 2 that Jeff covered uh, two weeks ago ended with a bit of a puzzle. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, we'd established that Christ is supreme over all things, over all philosophy, over the law, over all the actors and agents in the spiritual realm. He is crucified by our sins, and we are buried with him. We have been raised to life in him, and we've got that settled. We recognize that we have a sin problem, that we need to do something with our guilt, that we are separated from God, and that Christ answered all those problems on the cross. Philosophy, spiritualism, and self-discipline didn't help us with our initial sin problem, so there's no reason to think they're going to help us with our ongoing sin problem. Chapter 2 ends by saying, rules and regulations, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, rigorous self-denial of the body, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Before we knew Christ, the indulgence of the flesh didn't bother us. In fact, some of us loved the indulgence of the flesh. We were born in sin, and we didn't know any better. But once God went to work in us, made us realize that sin is, in fact, a problem, and it's going to kill us eternally, we came to Christ in repentance and faith. So now we're in Christ. We have this new life in us. We see our sin, and we hate it, but we still live in these bodies of flesh that are plagued by corruption and temptation. It's the uh, same battle that Terry was talking about not 10 minutes ago, that we are in Christ and yet we live in the flesh and we have an ongoing battle against sin in our lives. The indulgence of the flesh is actually something that we can see now and it bothers us and it's a problem. So how can we 
change, especially since all our old tools and tricks never really changed us on the inside. Last week, Eric Riddle laid the foundation for us in verses 1 through 4. Before Paul says anything about do this or don't do that, he starts with our position in Christ. Your new life is in Christ. Christ is your life. If you have been raised with Christ, then set your heart, set your mind on the things of Christ, on heavenly things, things above. Before we can change anything about our hearts and our desires, we have to begin in the realm of our thoughts and what we love. God has enabled us to hate sin and love Christ. That puts us in a position where we can Think in new ways. Be renewed in our minds. Focus on the eternal instead of on the temporal. And only then can we move on to changing our actions. It's not quick. It's not easy. In fact, it is a lifelong process. But it is what Scripture says. Last week, our take-home application was to be practicing gratitude. Giving thanks to God for what he has done and what he is continuing to do in us. Because it is through expressing thanks to God that we can be... um, Retraining our mind, establishing new patterns of thinking and uh, adopting new attitudes and putting pride and self-sufficiency away. And it helps us keep our eternal perspective and helps us concentrate on what really matters in this life. With that foundation, now we can move forward. Fortunately, Paul will be reminding us every couple verses that the changes that he's going to call for are rooted in what Christ has already done for us. We've got three paragraphs to cover. First, verses 5 through 11, we'll be talking about the old self that we are putting off. Second, verses 12 through 17 will be on the new self, new behaviors that we are to be cultivating. And then the third paragraph, verses 18 through the end of the passage, uh, will be Paul making application into the relationships of our lives. So with that, let's start in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These words help and serve to clarify each other. Passion in particular is not intrinsically bad. God made us with emotions, and some of them burn more hot than others. But uh, it's not easy, excuse me, it's not hard to figure out what Paul means by passion when he groups it with Sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, and covetousness. There is a, uh, a good and righteous and wonderful virtuous passion that is expressed in marriage that is in no way immoral or impure or evil. And we can all thank God for that. Um, but there's also uh, the distinction here is the last word, covetousness. And uh, that's what makes the difference between the good passion and the impure kind of passion that he's talking about here. Covetousness is wanting what isn't Yours, having a desire for something that has not been given to you. And it might seem like a stretch to call that idolatry until you realize that um, covetousness is an expression of dissatisfaction with what God has divinely ordained to provide. It's the attitude that says God has given me this spouse, this job, this family, this life, but I want something else. I want something else more then I want what God has provided for me. I want something else more than what God has for me. I want something else more than I want God. And you view it from that perspective, then it is definitely idolatry. And what does God think of that? Continue in verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That is bad news. However, for the believer, it is not the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God already came. And it fell and was exhausted on Jesus. Those sins were already paid for by him, and we are free of them. And that's why Paul says, put that stuff to death. 
get rid of it. That is behind you. We talked last summer about mortifying our sins, putting our sins to death. Uh, That sort of behavior characterized our old life, as Paul says in verse 7. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. It used to be your life, and so you walked that way. Now, your life is in Christ. Christ is your life. So don't walk that way anymore. Put it away. Put it to death. Put it off. Continue in verse 8. Now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Why? Because it's wrong? Because it's against the rules? Because it's not the Christian way? No, because of who we are in Christ. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. Here we go again with setting our minds on Christ. As you know Christ more through spending time with him in word and in prayer, he will be shaping and molding our minds so that, for instance, truthfulness rather than deceitfulness will be our character. Christ is your life. That has become the most important thing about you that transcends anything that existed in your old life. So we don't lie to each other. Because that's not who we are in Christ. We don't treat each other with slander and malice and anger because that's not how we treat each other in Christ. We don't commit sexual immorality against each other because now we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Here, verse 11, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all because we have been united to christ as individuals we are bound together as one body and what we have in common transcends everything that used to divide us any time or place where there is hostility between people groups in the world hopefully ideally you should find a church there where people on either side of whatever issue whatever conflict are worshiping together as brothers and sisters in the same congregation people who otherwise would have had no business being in the same room without bloodshed so what does this new self look like paul is going to give us a to-do list of virtues to cultivate but he'll also add some commentary about the process he's already described it as being renewed being made new in our minds in god's image but he will also call us god's chosen ones, referring to our secure position in God's family. He will call us holy already. We are already beloved, loved by God, even before we start cultivating any of these good behaviors. He will tell us that we are to do to others as Christ has done to us, and that will lead us towards harmony and unity and will bind us together and knit us together as one body. And the overarching motive for all this is to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is to spread his fame and increase his glory. So let's uh, see what Paul has in mind as we continue in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Two clarifications. Meekness, not an everyday word. Meekness means strength under control, power used gently, and a responsiveness, a sensitivity to God's instruction. Second, forgiveness. That is an everyday word, and often 
misunderstood, misused, used wrongly. Uh, forgiveness biblically means choosing to release somebody from your right to punish them. You've been aggrieved, you've been offended, you've been hurt, somebody has wronged you, and you have the right to hold it against them. Forgiveness is releasing that right to God, who can handle it better than you can. It's not excusing, it's not forgetting, it's not sweeping stuff under the rug, it's not going back to the way things were and saying it's all okay. It's saying, even though you hurt me, I am choosing not to hold that against you, I am releasing you from that debt. I have rights. I'm choosing not to exercise them. And as Paul said, we forgive others the way God has forgiven us in Christ. God did not hold our sins against us, but held them against Christ on the cross. And there's still negative consequences. Those relationships that have experienced sin and strain won't be the same even after forgiveness. That's a different process called restoration. But there's no more condemnation one person against another. All right, let's continue. Uh, we've made it through verse 13, verse 14. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This isn't love, the soft, squishy, meaningless term that we use to describe the warm fuzzies that we get when, like, Brianna sees a kitten or when we eat that cake that Birdie made last week that was so delicious and I loved that cake and that icing. This is not what Paul is talking about, unfortunately. Paul is talking about the conscious decision, conscious decision to want what is best for somebody else regardless of the personal cost. I love my family. I love spending time with them. I love spending time with them even when we're doing stuff I don't particularly enjoy, watching TV shows that I don't appreciate or, you know, spending a second hour shopping for candles or whatever. I love spending time with my family. But there are other times I express my love for my family by turning my back on them and going to work because they needed to be provided for. And those Yankee candles, they're not cheap. Somebody's got to make the money to keep the house smelling good. Christ's call to love your enemies doesn't mean to feel warmness towards them. It means to want what is best for them, to want them to be closer to God, regardless of how personally frustrating or galling that might be. In the church, that means we set aside our personal preferences a lot so that there can be no hindrance to the advance of the gospel. That's one way that it binds everything together in perfect harmony. Uh, last verse in the section. Nope, not the last verse. Plenty more verses in the section. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. That's our first mention of thankfulness in this passage. There will be more. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. What does he mean by those expressions? Well, he's used them before in this book. Three times in Colossians, Paul talks about the word. And each time he's talking about the word that is the gospel, the content of the gospel, the truths about how God saved us in Christ. So while, of course, the, uh, the words of Christ in red letters, obviously those are important, and we want to know the word of God, the Bible as a whole, what Paul is talking about specifically here is the word of Christ, the gospel, and that we are let it dwell in us richly, abundantly, Exceedingly. Secondly, what does he mean by admonishing? Back in chapter 1, verse 28, he used the exact same set of words. Uh, he's talking about preaching Christ, um, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone. It's the same word for admonishing. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, when we were in the search process, uh, the elders, we looked at six resumes and then another 10 and another 12. And there were at least that many more waiting for us once we got through those. And these were all just prospects, maybes. They existed on paper. They existed in our imagination, but that wasn't it. And the point in my mind, when Ben turned the corner from being just a prospect, maybe, uh, into a, you know, hey, I think we might have a winner here, was at an interview we did in, uh, I think it was early November, it was right in this room, uh, the seven of us and him sitting around the table, and we were asking him questions, and we'd gone all the way around the table twice, and after Ben had uh, answered 14 questions, plus follow-ups, then I think it was Mulder that asked him, you know, what question have we not asked that you wanted us to ask or think that we should ask and that was a a wonderful question of course because whatever he's going to say is going to be revealing if he says wow golly uh you know you guys are great and handsome and smart and your questions are amazing and there is just nothing left to talk about well we would have known exactly what to do with that on the other hand if he uh would have said you know i really really wish i've been hoping i've been looking forward to you guys asking me about transubstantiation or the four horsemen of the apocalypse or illegal immigration or you know my comic book collection well that would have told us something too we would have known to stay far away from that so what did ben say what was it that he said uh he had sort of astutely noted that we had not asked him about one particular topic and he said paraphrased that uh you know this i'm applying for the senior minister job and the senior minister job involves you know preaching so i thought you might ask me about preaching and i was going to say that you know not only should every sermon contain the gospel but every sermon should be about the gospel and flow from the gospel because everybody who hasn't heard it yet needs to hear it as soon as possible and those people who have heard it and believed it need to be reminded of it as often as possible because we are so likely to forget we just want to forget in our flesh. That is what Paul is doing in Colossians 3. All the stuff that he's telling us to do and telling us not to do, he's rooting it in, this is who you are in Christ. This is how the gospel is moving you forward. And it's what he's telling us to do for each other in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. When you are talking in the lobby, in your small group, at home, don't just be repeating the same silly stuff that the world gives us back and forth to each other. Remind each other of your position in Christ, what God has done for you in Christ and is continuing to do in an ongoing way. This Christian life that we're trying to live flows out of who we already are in Christ. Remind each other of that is what Paul is saying here in verse 16. Now, that sounds hard to do in actual conversation. You can get some practice doing that right here every week when we Sing together. Continue in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness, our second mention of thankfulness in your hearts to God. One way that we can preach the gospel to each other is through the songs that we sing. Yes, we are singing to God, but we are singing to God together. And that's not just for our individual benefit, it's for our mutual benefit. It is enriching to my soul to sing the songs that we do, to hear and be reminded of those truths, and uh, to help me believe it, and to have the notes and the rhythm of music lodge it in my memory. But you know what? I can do that in the car. 
I don't need you people for that. It is even more enriching for my soul to have those truths repeated and told to me by 75 other Christians all at the same time. Some of you more loudly and expressively and musically skillfully than others, but each in your own way, helping each other uh, hear and understand and remember and believe what it is that we are saying about our God and Savior. It's not singing for each other's attention, but singing for each other's good. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I stand. I need to hear you guys sing that like you mean it. And that's what Paul is talking about here in verses 16 and 17. So what are the key thoughts from this section? Our identity in Christ flows from our uh, foundation of our life in Christ. God's work comes first, making us alive in Christ. And then because of what he has done, we have new motivation and uh, new means to live a life that pleases him. And it's not just a church on Sunday. Verse 17, whatever you do all week long, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father That's our third mention of giving thanks to God the Father through him. Nothing got repeated in this section except for thankfulness three times. I hope you're noticing that pattern because I've said it more than three times. Okay. Uh, Paul does not leave it up to us to figure out the application on our own. He applies this right into the relationships that we have. Now, this passage is not about marriage or parenting or work. It is about how those relationships will look as we put on the new self, as we love above all things, as we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what is that going to look like? Chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's all he says about marriage. He gives us two verses. In Ephesians, we get 12 verses. In fact, these 22 verses that we're covering in Colossians, Paul takes 58 verses to do them in Ephesians. Ephesians reads like a commentary on Colossians, and like Colossians is the cliff notes on Ephesians. But all we get here is two verses on marriage. I'm sure you guys know that I am not afraid to preach what the Bible says, even when it's awkward or difficult. And if we wanted to take the time to fully explore everything that God has to say about men and women, husbands, wives, gender, marriage, sexuality, and how that all comes together under the heading of complementarianism, no, we could do that. But that is not where Paul goes in this text. He just says, wives, submit, and he moves on to the next thing. There will be a time for that sermon series, but this sermon series is Colossians. But since gender and marriage are current topics in our culture, I don't want to leave you without resources. In the last two months, I've heard two excellent sermons on this topic, both of them much more comprehensive than anything you could get out of Colossians. One of them was from Eric Roseberry up at City of God. The other was from John Piper at Bethlehem Baptist. They were both excellent. They're both online. If you want to know more about what God means by what he says, then Go there. Go online and hear them. For the here and now, we'll just make two observations before we press ahead. First, if the husband does his part to uh, keep on loving his wife and to not be harsh with her in word or action or thoughts 
or attitude or presence not harsh in any way, then that will make her calling to submit a heck of a lot easier. And it'll never be easy, but a godly husband will work hard to be the kind of man that a godly woman can freely and voluntarily submit to with honor and dignity. Husbands, we are not called to make our wives submit. I am called to be the kind of man to whom Aaron would be willing to submit gladly. Second observation, inside the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they are all equal in value and worth and dignity, but they are distinct in role and function. We saw this in chapter 1. Jesus is God the Son, truly God, like really, really, he's God. But he submits himself to the Father. That is his role and function within the Godhead. Now, when God made man in his image, male and female, he created them. He made the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, equal in value and worth and dignity. And he made us distinct in role and function, exactly the same way that uh, they operate inside the Trinity. No more on that. Continue into verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, and by extension, obviously mothers, parents, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Again, Ephesians gives us a lot more to go on. But in Colossians, Paul is hustling to get on to talk to the, the slaves, bond servants. You could sort of think of them as employees, but the tie that was binding them together was much stronger, and uh, the relationship was much more authoritative. Okay, the employee did not have the uh, privilege to quit his job and tell his boss to shove it. No, he was a, a slave, a bond servant. So let's see what Paul has to say in verse 22. Slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, only when the boss is watching, only just doing enough to keep him off your back, not like that, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. Word means work from the soul, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And on the flip side, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. And there is no partiality. So just because you're a Christian, don't think that the Lord or your boss is going to look the other way if you fall down on the job. Now we get one verse each for wives, husbands, parents, children, and masters. But we get four just for the slaves. Let's take care of the masters before we come back to uh, Paul's words to the slaves. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word for master is the same word for Lord. The Lord Jesus, he is our Lord. He is our master. We are his slaves, his bondservants. Okay, so why did Paul spend so much time addressing the Roman slaves? In the Roman society, to be a free man was it. To be a woman or a child or a slave, it just it didn't count for anything. So uh, Paul is actually really saying something about our position in Christ by even addressing the women and the children and the slaves at all. We are on equal footing in the body of Christ. But there is a, a unique situation going on here in the church in Colossae. This letter is being carried from Paul in Rome to Colossae by a group of folks that includes a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus was from Colossae. He had been a slave 
in Colossae in the house of a man named Philemon. Now, Philemon had come to know the Lord as his savior. He was a believer. Onesimus had not. And at some point, Onesimus fled. He ran away and he made his way eventually to Rome. He met Paul. He got saved. He became part of Paul's team. Paul calls him a faithful and beloved brother, as we'll see next week. And now, knowing Onesimus' story, Paul is sending him back, back to Colossae, back to Philemon. And he writes to Philemon separately in the book called Philemon and says, I want you to accept him back as a brother, accept him back home. This was a big Deal. It was hard for Paul to ask Onesimus to go back when he had committed a very serious crime in a breach of trust and there were potentially very severe penalties waiting for him when he got there. It was hard for Onesimus to do what he knew he needed to do and to go back and seek forgiveness from those that he had wronged. It was hard for Philemon to forgive and welcome Onesimus back home because he would have been incensed and embarrassed by Onesimus' betrayal. But Paul says, welcome him back as a brother. Didn't have the authority to free him. He's still a bondservant, but he is your brother, so welcome him back. And Paul offers to pay whatever damages Onesimus had incurred during his escape. Onesimus and Philemon and Paul were all putting into practice what we've seen here this morning. And this was hard for them to do. But because they were all, each of them believers, they were able to be growing in Christ and doing what he called them to do. Putting on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, and peace. Putting this into practice is difficult for them and it's difficult for us. It goes against our sin nature. In fact, it is impossible without God's help. You cannot live the Christian life without being in Christ. You grow in Christ the exact way you came to Christ, by grace, through faith. Set your minds on Christ. Set your hearts on Christ. Cultivate your love and affection for him by spending time with him. You can't go wrong with what Riddle said last week. Express thanks to God that will help you in every imaginable way as you try to grow in him. As you do those things, cultivate your love for him, set your mind on him, express thanks to him. You will be growing in Christ's likeness and you'll be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we've had a chance to look at this text, these 22 verses, and see not just that You have standards and you want us to behave a certain way, but that we can do this. That because of what you have done in us in Christ, because you have given us life and because you've given us your spirit, not only do we have the desire to please you and live a life that is righteous, but you give us the ability to do that as well. Lord, I thank you that in this part of the world, in this time period, legal slavery has been eradicated and I thank you for giving the courage and the moral rectitude and courage of fiber to people of a past generation to wipe that out in this part of the world. And I pray that you'll be continuing to extinguish the ongoing effects of that dreadful time in our communities and in our people as uh, we grow in your likeness and as your gospel goes forward. I pray for the parts of the world where that process has not yet begun. I pray that you will be sending your word, your people, your light into the world where there is still slavery and oppression, where that is still legal and allowed and considered to be normal and acceptable. Please be at work. Be uh, with those that are enslaved and oppressed, and please be um, putting your freedom to work in, in those parts of the world. I thank you that you have freed us 
from our bondage to slavery. Thank you that you have liberated us from uh, the, the power of sin. Thank you that you are uh, continuing to, in our lives, make us more and more free and more and more able to walk in a freedom and walk in newness of life that we could not ever do without you. I thank you that you have been continuing to work in our lives. I thank you that you have been at work this morning amongst us, speaking through your word to bring to mind specific relationships where we can play a part to bring about healing and growth, whether that be an act of repentance on our part or an expression of forgiveness. I pray that you would be giving us wisdom in how to act, courage in how to move forward, and, and that you would be blessing those steps that are taken uh, with, with fruit and that your grace would be upon us in that way. I thank you for the way that you have brought this community together. I thank you that you are bringing the Halliburtons here, and I pray that uh, in our homes and in our workplaces this week, that we will be uh, continuing to grow in you and to shine your light to those people who have not yet come to know you. It is in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.